everyone. Welcome back to Yacht Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov, And I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 20 on colon cancer. So in this episode, we'll be discussing the highest yield topics related to colon cancer. Specifically, we're going to work through risk factors, presentation, staging, and complications. And as always, we'll use test-like cases to guide our discussion. And with that, let's jump in. Okay, so we're going to start with a 40-year-old woman with no health issues who comes in for her routine physical. She tells you that her mother passed away from colon cancer, which was diagnosed when her mother was 60. And now the patient wants to get her colonoscopy ASAP. Before we can answer our patient's question, what are the guidelines for colon cancer screening in the general population? So generally, colon cancer screening starts at age 45. And what are the options that patients have for screening? So the classic option is colonoscopy every 10 years, but annual fecal immunochemical tests, aka FIT or FOBT, are also viable options. Less commonly tested options include a FlexSig, a flexible sigmoidoscopy, or a CT colonography every five years. Wow, lots of options. What are two special populations with different screening guidelines? So that would be patients with a first-degree relative with colorectal cancer or a high-risk polyp. Uh, And another uh, special population would be patients with ulcerative colitis. So first, what's the guideline for patients with ulcerative colitis? So patients with UC will get screened starting eight to 10 years after their diagnosis, and they should get a colonoscopy every one to three years. And now kind of for the more complicated guidelines, when do first degree relatives start the screening process? So regardless of the age of the family member at diagnosis, the latest that a first degree relative should get screened is 40. And the earliest they should get screened is 10 years before the age at which their relative was diagnosed. And how often is that repeated for them? So the first degree relative should go every five years instead of every 10, unless the relative with colon cancer or a high-risk polyp was diagnosed after the age of 60. If that were the case, then they would go back to the normal 10-year gap between colonoscopies. Okay. And can you explain this whole high-risk polyp aspect that you mentioned? Sure. So uh, we said uh, if a first-degree relative had either colorectal cancer or a high-risk polyp, then earlier screening was warranted. And that high-risk term is basically referring to the pathologic features of the polyp. And specifically, it's referring to an adenomatous polyp greater than 10 millimeters, a villus adenoma, or a high-grade dysplasia. Wow, that is some beautiful step one review. Thank you, Yaakov. Thank you. (laughs) What if the relative had a normally sized adenomatous or hyperplastic polyp. If that were the case, then there would be no special screening guidelines for that patient, and we would just start at the normal age of 45. Okay, but what if the individual themselves had a small hyperplastic polyp on a previous colonoscopy? If that were the case, uh, they would still stick with just repeating the colonoscopy in another another 10 years um, because they don't have high-risk features. So without high-risk features, polyps won't change the screening guidelines. Great. So with all of that in mind, how do we answer our 40-year-old patient? So since the patient's mother, who is a first-degree relative, had colon cancer at any point in her life, the patient should start her screening at her current age, which is 40, since that's earlier than 10 years before 60 when her mother was diagnosed. Uh, She would have to go every five years since her mother was exactly at that cutoff age for sticking with the normal 10. So every five years afterwards. Wow. Yak, let me tell you, that's a lot to process on screening guidelines. Can we quickly review them before we move on? 
Yes, absolutely. That's a good idea. So the general population starts colon cancer screening at 45 every 10 years with colonoscopy or annually with fit testing. Ulcerative colitis patients start about 10 years after diagnosis and they'll get colonoscopies every one to three years. And patients with a first-degree relative with a history of colon cancer or a high-risk polyp, which we defined previously, will start at 40 at the latest and receive screening every five or 10 years, depending on the age of diagnosis of the first-degree relative. Perfect review. Now let's get into some colon cancer risk factors. Let's do it. So another case, here we have a 45-year-old woman who's coming in for her screening colonoscopy. She doesn't drink or smoke, but she does eat red meat uh, weekly. Her medications include insulin for type 2 diabetes and daily ibuprofen for knee pain. Her vitals are normal and her BMI is 35. Her colonoscopy shows a small cecal mass and biopsies show that it's positive for adenocarcinoma. So Ben, what was this patient's main risk factor for developing colon cancer? We mentioned a bunch. Yeah, so it's actually a mix. Metabolic disorders such as obesity and diabetes increase risk of colon cancer likely through a mix of inflammatory and growth factor production. Interesting. And what about the red meat consumption that the question stem mentioned? I thought that was a risk factor. So red meat consumption is a risk factor, but it has to be very frequent, almost daily consumption to actually increase the risk. Awesome. I am learning so much and hopefully the viewers (laughs) are too. What are some modifiable risk factors that she doesn't have? So both smoking and alcohol increase risk, also likely through inflammatory mechanisms. And what about medical risk factors? So she doesn't have a family history of colon cancer. She also doesn't have ulcerative colitis, a history of abdominopelvic radiation, or any inherited colon cancer syndromes. Oh, right. All of those. Okay. Can we expand uh, more on some of those? Yeah. So there are two commonly tested ones. That would be Lynch syndrome and familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP. Great. So let's tackle Lynch syndrome first. What is that? So Lynch syndrome, also known as hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, is an autosomal dominant mutation in a DNA mismatch repair gene, which should be tested for in any patient with three or more relatives with colon cancer. Perfect. And what are the two other types of cancer that Lynch syndrome predisposes you to? That would be ovarian and endometrial. And Lynch patients are generally screened for endometrial cancer starting around age 30. Great. Now let's move on to FAP. What's that? So FAP is when a tumor suppressor gene mutation leads to development development of many polyps, sometimes thousands, and inevitably colon cancer in affected patients. Oh gosh. So how do we manage someone with that kind of mutation uh, and FAP? Yeah, so it it depends on their age. If a child is diagnosed before their teenage years, which is often the case because it's an autosomal dominant mutation, the answer is to frequently perform colonoscopies. Only once they're a teenager is a total colectomy recommended. An adult also should have their entire colon removed if the mutation is discovered at a later age. Gotcha. And can you name two other low-yield, step-one-esque throwback uh, familial conditions that predispose to intestinal cancers? Somehow, I still can, Yaakov. That's amazing. Uh, Thank you. So the first is Gardner syndrome, which also presents with jaw osteomas, and Poots-Jaegers, which is associated with small bowel cancer, colon polyps, and these freckle-like melanocytic lesions of the mouth. 
Great. So now that we've covered the major risk factors, are there any protective factors for colon cancer? Yes, there are two well-studied ones, one of which actually applied to our patient. So NSAIDs are pr protective against colorectal cancer, and she was on daily ibuprofen, so that works out. Uh, the other protective factor in general is a high-fiber diet. Great. Now let's see what happens when a patient presents with symptomatic colon cancer. So Ben, take it away. Okay. So a uh, brief case, an 80-year-old woman with a history of type 2 diabetes and obesity comes in with two months of bright red blood per rectum, a 10 kilogram unintentional weight loss and worsening fatigue. So let's talk about this presentation. What's another word for bright red blood per rectum? So we would call that hematochesia. And please, for all of you out there, do not say hematochesia. I have had attendings who say hematochesia. So it's very we bad. are accepting of all pronunciations, but we prefer hematochesia. Okay, fine. We'll be politically correct. We prefer hematochesia. <laughs> and what did we say was the difference between hematochesia and melana? So melana is the passage of dark, tarry stools due to processed blood, whereas hematochesia is unprocessed blood. Right. So where does melana usually come from? usually from either the upper GI system all the way up to the cecum, uh, since the blood will have time to be digested before it's excreted. What's the exception? So if a bleed is particularly brisk or rapid, such as from varices or a perforated ulcer, you can have hematochesia even from an upper GI bleed. So that leaves hematochesia as normally originating from? Yeah, usually from the sigmoid colon or the rectum. An important concept to cover. Thank you, Yakov. Based on that, where is the likely location of this patient's tumor? Given that she has hematochesia, I'd say it's probably a sigmoid adenocarcinoma. Based on her symptoms and presumed diagnosis, what's an important lab to draw before she gets her colonoscopy? We would want to draw a CBC since she likely has anemia, but we need to know how low her hemoglobin is. Let's say in an alternate universe, she didn't have the hematochesia. What other signs are concerning for colon cancer in an elderly patient? So actually, signs of iron deficiency anemia in general in someone over the age of 65 to 70 is enough to warrant a colonoscopy, especially if the patient has risk factors. So if you see a patient with conjunctival pallor and fatigue, uh, those can often be the first signs of an underlying colon malignancy. Any other symptoms to cover? So you'll also want to look for changes in stool caliber. Those are possible, especially if the tumor is large and if it's left-sided. So getting back to this patient in this universe, we, <laughs> we get a colonoscopy and it shows a sigmoid mass and biopsies show adenocarcinoma. What might have been different about her presentation if it was a cecal mass? So although we said earlier that melana might indicate a cecal mass, right-sided colon cancers are actually much more likely to present with occult bleeding, meaning blood that's not visible. So, uh, and they also often are accompanied by anemia, just as we, as we discussed. Great. So for our final case of this episode, let's talk about what happens after colon cancer is diagnosed. Great. So one last case, our 75-year-old patient comes in one year after receiving a right hemicolectomy for a stage one cecal adenocarcinoma. CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis did not reveal any metastases at the time of resection. He's feeling well and has had no issues since the surgery. First off, Ben, what does stage one generally mean when we're talking about colon cancer? So it means that the tumor only involved the mucosal and up to the sub submucosal layer, and it did not have any metastases. 
And when do we need to start performing colonoscopies again for this patient? Actually, right now, so all patients with stage one to three cancer get a colonoscopy one year after removal, and then every three to five years after that. Great. And are there any extra tests that are done for patients with stage two or stage three? They will add on an annual CT chest and abdomen. And of course, we're doing all this testing to see if there are recurrences or spread of the cancer. So what is the most common location of colon cancer metastasis? So that would be the liver due to the immense amount of blood flow between the colon and liver. And how do liver mets usually present? Usually, but not always, there are multiple liver lesions, which can cause hepatomegaly and elevation of liver enzymes. Look out for this situation on the test when the patient has both iron deficiency anemia, evidence of liver disease, and risk factors for cancer like those we discussed earlier. Perfect. And that's a great callback to end the episode on. Tune in next time for another few causes of lower GI bleeding. Thanks so much for tuning in.